Okay, brilliant. So I've got a, um, a question to ask you to start with. So what's the most important question that you've ever been asked? Okay, you can just think about it. You don't have to shout out the answers. But um, I'm sure it's one that has really shaped your decisions, affected whatever it was that you were going to do next. Maybe it has affected the whole of your life um, from that point on. And uh, Jesus asked lots of questions. And today we're focusing on one really significant question that he asked his disciples. And that was, who do you say I am? And the answer that they gave, it changed everything. And it marks a real um, turning point in the book of Mark. And as a church, we've been going through the book of Mark. And it's a question that we all need to answer. And uh, not just once in a lifetime. It's not just a, do I want to become a Christian? Am I a Christian? I've I've answered that. But it's a question that will shape our lives on a a daily basis, depending on how we answer it. And uh, through the worship, I was kind of thinking, we're declaring who Jesus is all the time. And I'm kind of thinking, this is really good. But this is almost like you're taking away my talk because we're declaring who Jesus is. But I still think God just really wants to challenge us, not just on the sort of pat answers that we give. Well, I know Jesus is this because I've read it in the Bible and I know this. But not just what's in our head, but what is in our heart and how that then affects Every area of our lives, the decisions we make all the time. It's not just the the surface answer, but how do we daily, every day, when we're going through those difficult times, not just on a Sunday morning, but on a Tuesday night, on a Friday morning where everything is really tough. Who is Jesus and how how does it really affect what we're doing? So we've been working our way through the book of Mark, and the first seven chapters have been kind of, Mark's been building up, revealing who Jesus is. We've seen him do amazing miracles, not as a teaching, but just really directing that, that Jesus, he's different, and, and starting to reveal who he is. But and, uh, today we're looking at chapter 8, and, and this is the point at which the disciples finally begin to see Jesus' true identity. It's not when they start to follow him because they've already left everything behind to follow him. But they've still got loads of questions. You know, sometimes it's like that. We're Christians. We we know we're following him, but there's still so much we want to know and still so many questions that we have. And the disciples were like that. There was still so much they didn't understand. And uh, in chapter 4, Jesus calmed the storm. He rebuked the wind and he commanded the sea to be still. And it says in chapter 4, they, the disciples, were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. So they obviously knew Jesus. They spent, <laughs> they spent their days with Jesus. They'd followed him round. But there was still that sense of they didn't realise who he was. They only had a partial view. And there were still so many questions they had. So the question, who do you say Jesus is? And it is an important one for us all to answer. And uh, you might be here today because you're kind of thinking, well, actually, I am asking that question because I'm not even sure whether he's real. And, and I'm on a journey to discover and think about what is it that I believe and do I even believe in him? And is he real and did he exist? Or you may be a Christian and you may be thinking, well, I know who Jesus is. 
But it's still an important question that we're posing because it translates and it impacts our daily lives. So, another question. How many of you looked in a mirror today? Kind of, I'm looking for anyone that looks disheveled that might not have looked in a mirror today. So, <clears throat> we use a mirror, we look in a mirror, and hopefully we look in a mirror because we want to see a reflection, a reflection back of what we look at. And, uh, but sometimes you find a mirror that's slightly distorted. Or I, sometimes I look in the mirror and I think the mirror is distorted. Because I think, oh, I don't really look like that, do I? But you know those fun fairs, those old-fashioned sort of fun fairs that you used to go to? I know you can do it now on, a, on, your, on your phones and things like that. But you can, you can sometimes look at a mirror and they have those mirrors where, where parts of you are elongated and parts of you stretch out. And, uh, and you kind of, it's you, but it's definitely not you. It's kind of a distorted image of you. And um, it's you, but it's a distortion of reality. And it, sometimes our view of reality can get distorted just because of the busyness of life. And, and it's the same with God. Our, our view of God can sometimes just get distorted by our experiences. And, and it's easy to, for us to be influenced, not just by our circumstances or our experiences. Our feelings can distort things, but often what other people say as well. And so it's important that we keep checking our understanding of God, what he's truly like, and then if it's not in line with the truth, if it's got distorted, if it's got stretched the, the wrong way a little bit, we bring it back into focus. So Mark chapter 8, it contains a miracle, a healing, a misunderstanding, and a direct question. And there are often events that we would read, we'd get our Bible out and we'd read them and we'd read these events in sort of isolation but they're all linked here, and, and they're linked to reveal the importance of how we answer the question, how do we see Jesus? So we start chapter 8 with the feeding of the 4,000. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus performed a similar miracle. He fed the 5,000. And so the disciples were there. They'd seen Jesus the thousands before. But their reaction to this situation and to Jesus is almost like they weren't there the first time round. So we're going to read Mark chapter 8. It's going to come up on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, you might just want to keep your thumb in Mark chapter 8 as we keep coming back to him. So verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now this always strikes me as quite a strange thing to say because they've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. And uh, when Jesus said about feeding that 5,000 people, they said, you know, well, we can't feed this crowd. It's going to cost far too much money. And now they've got 4,000, less, should be easier. And they're saying, well, there's nowhere to buy bread around here. We can't do it. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven, 
And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said um, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up all the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Now, I remember as a young Christian, I used to think that um, if I'd have been, you know, in the Bible times, if I'd have seen the things that, that God did, the miracles, then I would have such amazing faith. I, it would just set me up for life. You know, when you watch the sort of Prince of Egypt and they go out through the Red Sea and the water's all piled up and, and, it, and you just think, if I went through there, I'd never be one of those people grumbling in the desert because I'd know God could do it. And I used to have this really, really naive kind of <laughs> way of thinking. And now I know it's naive um, because I've seen God do amazing things in my life. And I've seen God do amazing things in other people's lives as well. And uh, the problem is, I'm prone to forget. When the next problem, when the next situation comes to me, I have this, um, this way of focusing on what is right in front of me. And I tend to forget what God has done in the past. And uh, the disciples are here. And it's Unlikely that the disciples had forgotten what Jesus did. I don't think you forget that, that God's fed 5,000 people, but they're not making the connection between what had happened previously and what was happening there. And their re response, the way they respond to Jesus when he says we well, need to be fed, it's almost like they're not expecting Jesus to do a miracle. You did that there, but we're in a different situation right now. And instead, what they do is they focus on their own limitations. It's like, well, there isn't anywhere. We're in the middle of nowhere. There isn't anywhere where we can go and get bread. And uh, so it's, it's kind of looking at the, the disciples' reactions. And we're going to come back to that in a bit. We're going to carry on. We're going to read verses 11 to 13. Jesus and the disciples, they'd, they'd left in a boat, and as they arrive at their next destination, the Pharisees are there to greet them. And so verse 11 says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got in the boat again and went to the other side. So now we've got the Pharisees. <clears throat> so how did the Pharisees see Jesus? They're asking for a sign. And it wasn't that Jesus couldn't do the miracle. And it wasn't that they hadn't seen miracles and they hadn't seen Jesus do amazing things. and seen Because they had. They, they knew that Jesus had been doing these miracles. They knew that Jesus had been healing people. But they're asking for another sign, not because they were curious about Jesus, but because, or because they had a particular need that they wanted Jesus to meet. It's not like the 4,000 people. There was a need. They were hungry. They needed Jesus to do something. The Pharisees were there and they were asking for a sign because they wanted to test him. And they wanted to test Jesus because they saw him as a threat. 
They saw it in someone who was going to destroy their traditions. And they were determined that actually these were traditions that they were going to persevere, uh, preserve at all costs. Because their traditions and their rules and the things they did were the things that set them apart as Pharisees. And they placed all their hope in the things that they did. They weren't interested in a saviour. Because their, their rules, their traditions were the things that saved them. That's what they believed set them apart. Those are the things that they believed made them right with God. And that's why Jesus just sighed deeply. Because they were blinded to the truth. The truth of everything that Jesus was doing. They couldn't see who Jesus really was. Because they didn't want to see. They didn't need to see. And, and it's a bit like that sometimes, you know, today, there are plenty of people today who would just say, well, I'm just not interested in Jesus. Because in their minds, they have no need of him. There are other things in their lives that would give them meaning and purpose. But there are plenty of religious people, too, that would put their hope in good works to save them. And even as Christians, we, need, we can be tempted to try and put Jesus in a box and say, well, you know, Jesus is okay. I can do the church thing. I can do the religious bits just so long as Jesus doesn't interfere with my choices, my plans, my way of doing things. You know, Jesus is okay, but I don't want him telling me what to do. So it's really important that we check and that we make sure that we're not falling into the trap of seeing Jesus in the same way the Pharisees or putting our hope and, and our salvation and the way we're right with God in other things and not in Jesus himself. So verse 14, it carries on the disciples. They're back in the boat. They're with Jesus and they've realized that actually everything's happening and they haven't got any more bread. And this becomes their focus. Verse 14, it says, Now they've forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, this is Jesus speaking, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now leaven is this like fermented dough that works like yeast. So like when you're doing a, a, a sourdough, you have like a, a fermented bit of dough and you put it in and then it works like yeast and it spreads through the rest of the dough. And uh, the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So how, how do the disciples see Jesus? Even though they'd given up everything to follow Jesus, even though they'd seen his miracles and they'd heard his teaching, they still didn't see Jesus properly. 
Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herod. And basically what he's saying, he's warning the disciples to watch out for those people that oppose him and his teaching. Because like fermented dough, it can spread and it works its way through and it infiltrates you. So he's saying, watch out for those that oppose me. You know, beware of this false teaching. But they completely missed this point. And they said, they, they, when they hear the word leaven, they're kind of focusing it on, it's bread. Jesus is annoyed. We haven't got enough bread. And it's a bit like you add two and two together and you come up with six. And it's kind of completely wrong. And, uh, and they decide that Jesus must be making fa- a reference to the fact that they don't have enough bread. Because their focus, again, is on their own limitations rather than on Jesus. The fact that they only have one loaf of bread completely misses the point of what Jesus is saying. But it also reveals something about their understanding and what's going on. Because they've not only seen, but they've actively been a part of these miracles that Jesus has done. So they were actually part of the feeding of the 5,000. They were the ones that were going out when Jesus had broke the bread. They were the ones that were distributing it. They were the ones that were collecting up all the leftover. And so if you do the maths, if Jesus can feed 5,000 people with five loaves, that works out at 100 pe- no, 1,000 people per loaf. That's right, isn't it? Not 100, 1,000 people per loaf. So if you kind of do that sort of maths, then really for Jesus to feed 13 people in a boat with one loaf, well, that's a really easy miracle, isn't it? You know, in comparison. And so it's no wonder that Jesus starts firing questions at them. You know, verse 17, he says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus is basically saying to them, You've seen me feed crowds of thousands. So why are you arguing about not having enough bread? And then to reinforce his point even more, he he reminds them about how much was left over each time. Twelve baskets full from the 5,000 and seven basketfuls after the 4,000 had eaten. No one went hungry. No one missed out on lunch that day. There was an abundance of food. If people wanted seconds, there would have been seconds. There was so much left over. They had seen these miracles with their own eyes. And more than that, they'd actually been part of the miracle. And yet their understanding of Jesus was blinded. And he had to say to them, do you not yet understand? And maybe, maybe you believe in Jesus but you don't believe he can or he will do what he says. You know, it's easy for us to get disillusioned. We can fall into a trap of thinking, you know what, I I really believe God is a God of miracles. And and I've read all these miracles in the Bible. And I've, I've heard amazing stories of how God's done miracles in other people's lives. But I'm just not convinced God would do this miracle for me. I'm just not It's not even a miracle I need. It's kind of a small thing in comparison, but I'm just not convinced he's going to do it for me. And maybe you know who Jesus is, and maybe you've experienced him at work in your life, but 
that was then and now you're faced with this new situation and it's a different situation and it's a situation you've never come across before and you're just not sure how you're going to get through it but you're also just not sure whether Jesus is going to show up this time. Or when you see Jesus, do you, do you limit him to what he can do? And it's important to remind ourselves that our limitations, and we all have limitations, um, our limitations are not limitations to Jesus. Jesus has the power to do amazing things with whatever small amount we have. And just like Sarah was encouraging us as a church, I really felt like God really wanted to encourage us as well as say, we might be small, but our limitations is not a limitation to God. It's not about what we don't have. It's about giving what we do have to a God who is able to produce abundantly more than we will ever need. And Jesus challenged them, do you not remember? When we remember what God has done in the past, then we have that faith to trust him in the present. We get overwhelmed. or Oh, this is me anyway. This is what I do. I get overwhelmed because I don't understand or I don't remember the power of God, uh, power and the goodness of God and what he's already done. And the Bible, it constantly tells us to give thanks. It's constantly telling us to remember, to rehearse. When we're giving thanks, we're bringing things to mind we're rehearsing them we're going over them again in our mind we're speaking them out we're speaking out things that God has already done and and as people we need constant reminders and it's not about always looking back because it's not always looking back and then thinking oh well they were the good old days and oh God did that in the past um it's not about living in the past because if you're if you're driving a car if you're a good driver then your eyes are on the road But even though your eyes are on the road and your eyes are fixed on where you're going, if you're a good driver, you always check your rear view mirror because you need to know what's happening. And it's like we're pressing ahead and and God's got new things for us. But we need to remember what God has done in the past because remembering what's what's gone in the past gives us hope for what God will do in the future. And we've been declaring it in our worship today. We've been saying Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so he has the same power to do what he's done in the past. But he also has the same willingness to do these things as well. And in both times when Jesus fed the crowds, it was because he had compassion on the crowds. Jesus had compassion and so he did something. And it's just reminding ourselves as well that, that, that God has compassion upon us. That we're not twisting God's arm. And David in the Psalms, he said, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And if you read Psalm 103, he goes on and and he lists what God has done, but he also starts listing the characteristics of God. It's like he's rehearsing it over in his mind. God's done this in the past, and God's faithful, and God's gracious. So the question today is, what do we, what do you, what do we need to remember that God has already done in order to keep us focused on who Jesus truly is? And what are the characteristics, what are the attributes that we know of God 
that we've already seen just in this passage that, that Jesus is our provider, is compassionate. What are the things that we know about God that we need to remind ourselves of daily? Because that's going to keep Jesus in focus. It's going to remind us of who God is. Then, then Mark, uh, he then moves on and he tells the story of a blind man being healed. And at first, this seems unrelated to the previous events. It was all about bread and, and everything. But Mark has included it here for a reason, as we'll see as we go on. So verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought, him, uh, brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. He sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And it's, we've heard about Jesus healing people um, in the past. And Jesus has healed people already. And Jesus could have healed this man. He could have spoken just a word, but he didn't. He chose to do it a different way. And the man went from being blind and seeing nothing to seeing only in part. And he kind of reasoned that he was seeing men because he saw them, but they would look like trees, but they were moving around. And so he said, well, they must be men and not trees. And so, so when Jesus first laid hands on him, he, he got some sign. And if you can't see anything, and, and, and there's nothing you can see, and then you can start seeing some things, then that in itself is a miracle. And I guess if we prayed for someone, and they went from not being able to see anything to seeing something, we'd be like, wow, this is amazing, this is fantastic. You know, we'd be absolutely delighted. But Jesus didn't leave him partially seeing he laid on his hands on his eyes and he opened them so that his sight was fully restored, so that he could see everything clearly. Just seeing in part was not enough. And we don't know why Jesus healed him in stages and why Jesus didn't heal him straight away. But we do know that Mark's put this story here for a reason. And it's sandwiched between Jesus speaking to the disciples about their lack of understanding and then him asking them who he is. And the disciples had this partial understanding of Jesus. They'd left their homes and jobs to follow him, but their understanding of who he was was still not clear. And it can be like that sometimes when we first encounter Jesus. We don't always fully appreciate who he is. But Jesus is committed to revealing himself to us more and more so that we see him fully. And the story also reminds us that unless we see Jesus properly as he fully is, then our eyes are not yet fully opened. And it is possible for us to have a vague or distorted image of who he is. And straight after healing this man, Jesus asked the disciples specific questions. And so it's important to make the connection between these unre seemingly unrelated in incidents. Mark's put the story of the blind man receiving his sight, and as we'll see, the blind disciples gaining their insight. So verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So how did the crowd see Jesus? Some saw him as John the Baptist, others as Elijah. They kind of think that he's a prophet, a man who speaks out about evil and injustice, who brings hope to the world, really positive viewpoints of Jesus, but that's all it is. It isn't a true picture of who Jesus is. Jesus was so much more than a prophet. Just like the blind man who saw people, but they looked like trees. The crowds, they're seeing Jesus, but they don't see who he really is. And there's lots of people, if we talk to people today, there's lots of people that would hold Jesus in high esteem, who would see him as a positive role model or a good teacher or a prophet. But this isn't who Jesus is. Jesus is so, so much more than this. And so he asked the disciples straight, he said, and, but who do you say I am? Verse 28, and Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. How did Peter see Jesus? Well, Peter declared, you are the Christ. And that declaration literally means you are the anointed one. Earthly kings were traditionally anointed with oil as a type of coronation. And the word Christ had come to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, the king that will end all kings. The king that's going to put everything right. So Peter is declaring, you are the true king. And finally, it's like, like Peter's seen Jesus for who he is. And in Matthew's account of the same conversation, he records Jesus saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's like, yes, Peter, you've got it. You've understood. Finally, you've got this revelation, and this revelation has come from God. You've you've realised who Jesus really is. But it's almost immediately after this revelation comes, immediately that their eyes are open and they see Jesus for who he is. And they realise that he's the Messiah. Jesus starts to tell them what sort of Messiah he is. And what Jesus says next really shocks Peter. Jesus begins to tell them, yes, I am the king, but I'm not the king that you were expecting. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He wasn't speaking in parables. He was saying it plainly, exactly as it is. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was totally on board with Jesus being the Christ, but he was not on board with Jesus going to the cross. And to Peter, this statement that Jesus had just made was totally ridiculous because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world. And how on earth could a Messiah do that if he was going to suffer and die? 
So Peter, he just didn't get it. He just made this bold declaration. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the King. You rule over everything. There is no one and no one will be greater than you. You rule over everything. But Jesus, I just need to tell you how you're supposed to go about this ruling business. Because I think you've got it all wrong. And it's kind of the irony of of what Peter's even saying there. And so Peter rebukes Jesus because he saw Jesus as the king, but he didn't yet fully understand his mission. And it wasn't that Peter didn't love Jesus. It's just that he didn't understand the purposes of God. He didn't understand that suffering and death was necessary for our salvation. Peter probably had in mind a king who would set them free from Roman rule and oppression. But Jesus came to set us free from something much greater, a much greater rule and a much greater oppression. And Jesus was really, really clear with the disciples that he must suffer and he must die. And the term son of man was a reference to a passage in Daniel 7 where one like the son of man, a divine, a messianic figure, comes with angels to put everything right. And it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And this is the king that Peter was expecting. He never expected that the Son of Man would suffer and die. And Jesus wasn't even saying, you know, it's going to be tough, Peter, and there's going to be a fight, and there's going to be a battle, and I'm going to give it my best shot, but I'm going to get defeated. What Jesus was saying was, I am planning on dying. I intend to die. I must die. It wasn't something that was forced on him, but something that Jesus came to do. And that word must is significant because it has to happen. It's necessary. Jesus must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and then must be resurrected. Why? Because Hebrews 9 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So only by giving his life and conquering death could Jesus make the greatest payment for our sin. And Peter is finally seeing Jesus for who he is. But it's completely turned his preconceived ideas upside down. Jesus is the King and the Messiah. But he came not to live, but to die. Not to take power, but to lose it. Not to rule, but to serve. And this was his plan for how he was going to defeat evil and put everything right. He's, the ki- he's Christ, he's the King of kings, but not in the way that they were expecting A king who dies is not what Peter had anticipated. It was not what he wanted, but it was what he needed. He wasn't a king who was going to set him free from the oppression in the world, but one who would save him and set him free and make him right with God for all eternity. And Peter may have been really slow to understand this at first, And he didn't always get it right. And in fact, if you know anything of Peter, most of the time he got it wrong. And that should encourage us because, you know, God still used him. God used him in an amazingly, an amazing way to build his church. 
And we don't always see Jesus. We get it wrong sometimes. We, we misunderstand what God's asking us to do. We misunderstand things. And um, everyone can have an opinion of Jesus, but that doesn't mean it's true. We can have all the right information about Jesus, but like Peter, we can still get it wrong. We can know loads about him, but that doesn't mean that we know him. And it's easy to fall into a trap of seeing Jesus the way we want him to be. And our challenge is to make sure that we keep seeing him as he really is. He's our saviour, but he also wants to be our Lord. He's promised to give us peace and contentment, but that comes by submitting and living life his way. And it's costly, and it's a challenge. And following Jesus often means difficult decisions, but that's when we're coming back and we keep focusing on Jesus again and again. Because when we keep realigning our focus on him, when we keep reminding ourselves of who he is, that's when, that's when we change. Because the more we see Jesus and the more we look on Jesus, we know that whatever we give up for him, whatever cost it is, it's definitely going to be worth it. So the question today is, how do you see Jesus? Are you seeing him clearly or are you seeing him partially? And um, there's an amazing prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And um, that Ephesus, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1 verse 6. And and I just feel like this is the prayer for all of us. And I just want to almost pray over us as a church. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills us all in all. This is who Jesus is. And wherever you are on your journey with God, we all need to keep asking God to reveal to us our blind spots, to give us eyes to see him more and more, that we would know him more fully. So Lauren's going to come up and we're just going to respond. I know we've probably gone over time, but there we are. We're eating into the greatest showman, but it's okay. Because we're just going to respond briefly by worshipping. And this is our opportunity to to sing and and just to ask God to open the eyes of our heart. And if you're seeing and you're thinking, you know what, I've got 20-20 vision, I know who Jesus is, then that's amazing because that's why we come and worship him. And if you're just aware there are certain areas of your life where it's got a little bit blurry and a little bit out of focus, then this is your opportunity just to reaffirm that.